Welcome to RUF. Uh, sorry some of you are sitting on the floor. Just glad I'm not. Um, uh, yeah, if you've never been to RUF, what RUF hopes to be is a safe place, whether you're uh, unconvinced about the Bible and what Christianity is and who Jesus is, and a safe place for if you are convinced to just explore the truth claims of who Jesus is and how he claims to be life itself and how he came not to love good people but to love really messed up people. That's what we're about. And therefore, what we're going to do, at least what we're going to try, is next week we're going to go for two services because there's people back there that are miserable. And it's uh, and this Greek rush, so we have no fraternity people here. So what we're going to do next week, what, we're going to ask you to help spread the word. I, actually, you might hate what I have to say and never come back, and so maybe we won't have this problem. And that, That's okay. That's okay. But we will meet. There'll be a service at 6.30, and then there'll be a service at 8. And see, from like 7.30 to 8, you can see all your friends as they come. So that's what we're going to try next week. We're going to try probably for two weeks, and then we'll probably consolidate again, unless all of you keep coming, then... We'll figure something out, so we will wear our musicians out, though. Um, okay, and uh, what we usually do is, um, here at REF, is we usually pick a book of the Bible, and we just march straight through. However, if you've seen any of the signs on campus, which, <laughs> which we were alerted to, it appeared that it said, uh, sex in auditorium at 7 o'clock tonight, and um, <laughs> so don't know what your expectations were when you showed up tonight, but... Uh, we will talk about that, uh, but what we're going to do this semester is, is unique, because instead of just marching through the book of the Bible, what we try to do at RUF is once every four years, so that you get this if you go through um, college, is we spend a whole semester talking about relationships. And the reason is twofold. First of all, right, something profound happened to many of you last week. Right, you arrived onto the campus of Mississippi State for the first time, and many of you came here hardly knowing anyone. Right, and upperclassmen, don't forget what it's like to be a freshman. And do you remember that feeling? It was exciting. There's kind of this blur of excitement, but it is also terrifying. Right, it was exciting because, because there was this, these possibilities ahead that seem endless. But honestly, for most people, and this is how it was for me, it was, it was terrifying for this notion. Nobody knows me. And did you, did you spot that? And I want to fill in the blanks and suggest that the reason that you felt that terrifying sensation that nobody knows me is because relationships, the idea of actually being known by people, it's not just an aspect of your life. It's central to who you are. And so when it's gone... It's almost paralyzing. But the other thing is this. Because it's so central to who you are, I'm going to suggest, no one has a neutral view of relationships. Something is shaping your view of of your expectations of relationships, of what they're supposed to look like, what's bad, what's good, and there's a million things trying to shape it. Things outside of you, like the media, right? If if the bachelor (laughs) shapes your idea of what marriage is, then... There's some expectations you're coming in. But we're also shaped, our expectations of relationships, by our own insecurities and sin. 
And so what we're going to do every, night, every Thursday night is suggest that there's nothing more healthy than to look at God's Word and see if it'll shape our thinking and our understanding of what relationships are supposed to be. So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, probably many of us here tonight, uh, we're not convinced uh, that the Bible is your Word, and we're glad they're here. Lord, others of us, uh, we are tired uh, we're tired of playing the game. We grew up kind of in the church and convincing people that we had it together. And in this past week, we have we finally showed who we are, and we're wondering what that means. And Lord, uh, others of us were just really excited to be here. Lord, all of us. It doesn't matter where we are. What we need is to see and experience Jesus Christ, a God of tremendous grace. And so would you open our hearts as we read your word and help us to understand it and believe it and draw us sweetly to yourself. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, Genesis 1. We're going to start in the beginning of the Bible in verse 26. It's also in the back of your, uh, your handout if we didn't run out. <clears throat> Genesis 1, verse 26, and I'll skip to chapter 2. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'm going to go to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Grass withers, flowers fade, word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, what we just read, according to the Bible, is the way that God brought everything into existence in this world. And from the beginning, what I'm going to beg you to see is that from the beginning, there is relationship. So what I want to look at tonight is how we are created for relationship, how we're designed for it, and how those relationships are meant to be body and soul And then how those relationships actually only function rightly if they are in submission and they are purposeful. All right, first, we are created for relationships, right? Verse 26 and 27. I'm going to begin the whole semester talking about relationships by looking at who God is. And you might say, that seems crazy. 
Why would we look at who God is to figure out how our relationships work? Well, what if the reason that relationships are so central to who you are is actually theological? What about if that's the case? What about if it has everything to do with who the God of this universe is? Because look at verse 26. When God first makes man, it's unique. When he creates everything in Genesis 1, he looks at it and he says it's good. But then when he comes to man, right, he says, let us make man in our image. That's a really odd statement, right? God, singular, then says, let us, plural, make him in our, plural, right, image. You've got to ask this. Who is God talking to? Right? Who is he talking to? And the answer is himself. And what you have here is a hint that the Bible will further unveil as you, as you walk through it, is that the God of this universe, the biblical God, is a trinity. That he has three persons, and he's one essence. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, and it's a mystery. And you think, I came to hear about relationships, and you're talking about the trinity. This is why I don't come to these things. But look, yes, it's a mystery, but it's incredibly practical, I'd suggest. If you believe in God tonight, no matter, no matter what that belief is or no matter your background, I, you don't have to be a Christian to declare that God is love, right? Most people believe that. But here's my question. What's your basis for that belief? Why do you think that? Because only Christianity dares to suggest that from all of eternity... The one true God is love. Why? Because love has to have an object. Right? I can't just say, I love. It's, right? There has to be an object that receives your love and that your love is pointed to. And every other concept of God, just go, go look at it. Love and relationship is an afterthought. Because he cannot relate and he cannot love until he creates something else. Ah, but the biblical God, the real God I'm suggesting, is intrinsically loving. He's intrinsically relational because from all eternity, he has been loving and relating to himself, who is three persons, one essence. God the Father has always been loving God the Son, and God the Son has always been loving the Holy Spirit, and, and so on. And see, this is saying that all of us here tonight... What is true of you, no matter where you come from or what you've done, is that you are made in the image of God. A God that is a community, right? And what it means to be made in the image of God is that you are made to reflect who God is to the world. And what I want to put before you tonight is this. Would you just tonight, no matter where you are, would you consider the possibility that this being made in the image of God, just maybe this, explains and makes sense of what goes on with you. Just try it out, right? Try to find a better explanation for why the best moments of your life generally involve around the people that love you the most and you love, right? Try to find a better explanation for why breakups hurt so badly and they just don't go away. Or try to find a better explanation of why, for many of you, last week, at best, was full of anxiety, and at worst, was extremely painful. 
because you didn't get in the sorority that you wanted to. See, the reason that the biggest joys, I would suggest, and the most pains in your life revolve around relationships is because love and relationship has always been at the heart of reality itself. God, the Trinitarian God. And so love and relationship is central to you because you're his image. And so one of the primary things that it means to be human, when God makes humanity, it means that you are a communal being, that you're hardwired, you're formatted for relationship. That So much so that this sounds crazy, but the body cannot survive without food. And this is daring to suggest that you cannot survive without relationship. It's that central. And, and there might be no more convincing evidence than, uh, for the centrality of the relationship than a kind of a famous study that was done, I guess about 80 years ago, from the psychologist Renee Spitz. Here's what the, kind of, uh, an article commenting on her research said. Listen to this. In, South, in a South American orphanage, Spitz observed and recorded what happened to 97 children who were deprived of emotional and physical contact. Because of a lack of funds, there's not enough stuff to adequately, adequately care for these children ages three months to three years old. Nurses changed diapers, fed and bathed the children, but there was no time to hold, cradle, talk to, and feel the kids and be with them. And here's what she found. After three months, many of them showed signs of abnormality, they lost their appetite. They were unable to sleep well. Many of the children lay with a vacant expression in their eyes. And after five months, I mean, this, this is hard for me to say, deterioration set in. And then he said this, they lay whimpering with troubled and twisted faces. And often when a doctor or nurse would pick them up, they would scream in terror. Twenty-seven, almost one-third of the children died in the first year. And they had food. And they had water. But they did not have relationship. And what Renee Spitz uncovered was simply that relationships are never just an aspect of life. They are vital to your experience. They're central to who you are. And that means, first point by far is the longest, so don't get scared. That, that has to mean this. Two things for us tonight. That when God creates you and I in the image of himself, and he is a trinity, and he declares it is not good for man to be alone, right? He said that. It's not good for man to be alone. It means this. If you really want to know yourself and who you are, it means you have to pursue relationship. You have to. Don't retreat. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean marriage, but, but some of you have had so much pain and disappointment in relationships, maybe already this year or this week, that the temptation is always to get cynical and to say, well, I'm just done. I'm done with people. It's just, too, it's just too painful. But see, if relationship is central to who you are, retreating from someone would be like turning and saying, look, I got food poisoning when I was eating, so I'm never eating again. That's what it's akin to. But second of all, it means this. That means the real action in the Christian life is not found when you're alone with your Bible in your quiet time. Oh, it's necessary, but it's amazing how we have made that the spiritual barometer of how we're doing with Jesus. And I think we've done that because it's easier to quantify and control and measure. But when you read the Bible, you realize the Bible is intensely relational and communal. 
If you go back tonight and you read 1 Timothy 4 through 5, this, this really is a crazy, crazy passage. It talks about a warnings to false teachers and, pe- and demonic spirits, whether you believe in that or not. And he says, watch out for people who sear the consciences with their lies. Now, what do you think the Apostle Paul is going to say? When he says, watch out for false teachers who sear the consciences with lies, what do you think he's going to say? I mean, I assume he's going to say something crazy like, I don't know, people saying that murder's okay or something like that. But look, when he prepares them for false teachers, here's what he says. It will be people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. That's a false teacher. Anybody that looks at you and says, look, what God created good, for you to be really spiritual, you need to abstain from those things. says, that's it. And that really does mean this. Look, if someone comes along and tries to tell you it's more spiritual to be single... Or it's more spiritual to be away from relationships. There's more spiritual to not desire sex. Or if someone says you should feel guilty for wanting to get married, even if that means sacrificing your career, Paul says no. And the Bible says no. It's evil and it's false teaching. And that means it really is okay and not immature and not just because you're love struck if you want to get married and actually live on just a little bit instead of just making yourself secure before you get married. It really is okay. You don't have to do that. But don't believe it's less spiritual. Or sometimes, look, I, I hear this all the time, and I, I do. I've got, I've got to be gentle here. But it sounds so good sometimes when you say to me, right, uh, i got to get my life together before I, before I go date somebody, right? That's what we say. Because I need to change. And I... I don't want to be harsh because that really could be the case, but notice the assumption that's usually lurking there. That I need to change outside of relationships before I go into them. The Bible never assumes that. See, due to God's image being stamped on you, the ordinary way that you change is not apart from people, but with people. Without community, without people in your life, you will never ordinarily change. So if you want to figure out what Christianity is, what it means to meet God, I'll just give you a suggestion. Be around God's Word and be around His people. You know what that means? If you show up every Thursday night, you'll be around God's Word and you'll be around God's people. This is where He promises to work. So first and foremost and longest, I promise. You really are designed for relationships. I'm suggesting it's in your DNA, your spiritual DNA. But second of all, you're created for relationships that are body and soul, right? 2, uh, 18, verse 20, and verse 23, God over and over, he keeps looking at his creation, and he keeps saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. But after he makes man, he says, this is very good. And what I want you to think about is this. God clearly creates man and woman body and soul. And he declares man and woman, body and soul, very good. And what God declares good, we don't have a right to say that it's bad. And I find this fascinating. Right? The first recorded words of mankind in Scripture, the first recorded words, are not, 
God, you are amazing. God, you fill me with so much joy. That's what I would expect. I'm not saying he didn't say that. But that's not the first thing that Adam said, is recorded as saying. The first recorded words of man in all of scriptures in Genesis 2, when he sees Eve, when God creates Eve, body and soul, and when he looks at her in the beauty of her flesh, and he knows her, body and soul, he knows her character, he knows her emotions, he knows what she looks like, the first words of mankind recorded are a, po- are a poem. Ladies, he bursts into a love song over his wife. What does that mean? I, I think it means that real relationships, the ones that restore you, the ones that you were made for, that are at the heart of this universe, they are body and soul because they involve all of you, the whole person. And if you are made for relationships that are both body and soul, that are supposed to involve all of you, then I'm going to suggest a couple things. That means relationships that don't involve all of you, they will not work. They'll be dysfunctional because it's not how you were designed. But see, our sin makes us crazy. It makes me crazy. And so sometimes what we try to do is we try to gain relationships and acceptance and attention by bifurcating our body and soul and just giving one while withholding the other. You know what I mean? I mean, how many of you ladies have already figured out that your body, it just can. It can be used to gain attention. It's so easy for some of you. And what you do is you divide your body from the rest of you and you start treating it as a tool. It's a tool to be manipulated and almost tirelessly beaten into this impossible idea of perfection. And here's the deal. It kind of works, doesn't it? It kind of works. And you get the looks. But eventually you start resenting it, don't you? You start resenting it because you know in your heart you want to be loved as the whole you. And not just your body parts and how you look. And it wears you out. Right? Also because you're made body and soul and relationships involve all life, you... I'm going to say this gently. This whole semester I realize it could be tough. But it's the reason why any kind of sexual activity, and I'm not just talking intercourse, any kind outside of marriage, it doesn't work. It disintegrates. It never enhances a relationship. It always destroys it. Why? Because you're trying to bifurcate your body and your soul. And so when you sleep over, when you touch or inappropriate, or, or when you do things with your body... What you're doing with your body, you're saying, I love you. But your soul, you're withholding because you're not committed to her. And you haven't given her your emotions and you haven't given her all of you. You've withheld your money, everything else. And it's a lie. And you feel it. And that's why it hurts. But the opposite is true too, right? Many of us seek relationships without the body, right? We divide the soul and the body and you try to build a relationship Try, right, while hiding behind email or text messages or chat rooms. Right? And so what ends up happening is you feel incredibly known. And you feel like somebody connects to you. And they, they kind of are. Because you've been vulnerable and you let people see your soul and who you are. But you've done it in a way that's kept your whole self from them. Right? And so you feel incredibly attached to somebody. But it's just kind of shallow. Because they don't know you. 
the whole you because you've hidden your body. And I really do want this to be encouraging because that also means this. This is especially for you, ladies. You can quit feeling guilty about your desire to be beautiful. You really can. Let's admit, okay, first of all, we all have a very shallow definition of beauty, especially our culture. Okay, they're simplistic in their idea of beauty because it just comes down to body shape and body parts and how you look. And beauty is much, 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 much more than that. And we're going to talk about that. But you need to hear me say this. A part of beauty does involve your body, and that's okay. Right? When Adam looks at Eve, body and soul, he is thrilled. He says, you look amazing. You are made to be before the gaze of someone, and here you are beautiful. It's okay to want that. It's okay for, to want someone to look at you, body and soul, and say, I'm amazed at what I see. That's a good desire. Quit trying to kill it with cynicism. So God designs us for relationships, but relationships that actually involve the whole you. I just, I just realized you people are over here. I'm sorry. I'll start looking at you. So. Um, but lastly, right, God created us for submissive and purposeful relationships. 128, 2, 15, and 17, right? In chapter 2, we see something incredibly important in regards to who we are. God creates mankind in his own image, right? So he's a relational being. But then God gives law to regulate those relationships, right? On the one hand, he gives them this positive law, this incredible permission. He says, I've given you every, every tree in the garden to eat. Go, enjoy it. It's a command. Go enjoy everything I've given you. It's a positive command. But then God forbids something, right? In verse 17, he says, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know how that lands with you tonight, and that's okay. But I want you to at least recognize this. That the heart of God's law is actually his love for you. Right? Did you see it? He says, I'm forbidding this because if you eat of it, you will surely die. So let this sit with you, at least just for tonight. That the Bible dares to suggest that God's law is actually an aspect of his love for you. Because it's, it's for your thriving. And it's for your protection. It's, give, it's not just these abstract rules that's trying to take away life, right? A lot of times we think of the law of God, that's what I do, that it's this fence around an amusement park and it's just keeping me away from fun. And he's just this angry God. But this is saying that, that these are deeply personal laws because he's a personal God who cares for you and so gives you the freedom to thrive but also protects you from that which will kill you, sin. And so in other words, God's law does not choke out the fun in relationships. It doesn't. It doesn't take away from the health of your relationships. The law enhances them. It gives you a picture of what they're supposed to look like, and it protects them, right? We, have, we, we don't have a ton of rules in our house. Um, probably why our kids will be crazy one day. We have one very—I have two kids, by the way. Aunt Shelby is my oldest, who's four— and he's my youngest, who's two. We have one big rule about being outside, and it's simply this. You cannot play in the street. And you know what? My girls hate that rule. They, th- they are convinced that that rule is intended to take away the joy in their life. And so they cry about it. They scream about it. 
But I know and you know it's actually the opposite, right? That though they don't feel that way, the rule actually allows them to play freely in the yard, away from danger, and enjoy play, and it protects them from danger. And what we're going to see next week when we look at how our relationships are dysfunctional, we're going to see that Adam and Eve, they did not believe that God really loved them. They didn't really believe that true joy was found in God and in relationship with him. And so they ignored it and they rebelled against his law. And the end result was not life. It was decay and death. Because you see, if you're made in the image of God, it means that you will only function rightly in relationship as you properly image him, which is what his law is. It says, this is how you, this is how you image me. This is what I look like. And so this semester, I'm going to beg you over and over, as hard as this is, to see that your dating relationships, your marriage, your friendships will be healthy insofar as you are submissive to his law. And I realize that's, that's not popular to say, and I, I don't like hearing that. But his commands regarding your body and your sexuality are actually there to protect the enjoyment and beauty of sex, not to take away the fun of it right? His commands regarding your speech with each other, to be gentle and gracious and forgiving and speak the truth in love, they're out of God's love for you because he wants healthy relationships. So they really, the relationships are created to be submissive to God, but also, and I'll kind of start winding up here, they're created to be purposeful, right? Verse 18 through 20, when God, God creates people with a purpose, You and I, we have a purpose by definition of who we are. See, in chapter 2, when God creates Adam and God says it's not good that man should be alone, he is zero... Look, God didn't forget something. something, It's not like something slipped his memory. What he wanted to do was make Adam feel that being alone was not who he was made to be. And so what God does is he says, I'll make a helper fit for him. That's an interesting way to put it, right? A helper. Why that term? And that term has nothing to do with less status or roles or anything like that. They're equal. It does have to do with roles, but not, not less status or value. They're equally in God's image, equal before the throne of God, but it's a term of function. A function. This is fascinating. The only reason that God would call Eve, a, call another person a helper, is if together they would accomplish something better than if they were alone right? That's the only reason, which means here's the key. Eve was never intended to be the purpose of Adam's life, and Adam was never intended to be the end goal of Eve's life. Nope. See, God is saying the purpose of marriage is for the two to become one flesh so that they can bring the rule and reign of God into expression in this world. That's their purpose. That's what all these instructions about cultivating land and caring for it and and keeping the world beautiful. That's what it's about. He's saying, be about the kingdom. I'm making all things new. And go out into this world and make it a beautiful place. A place fit for me to dwell. And sin has messed everything up. But what God is saying is your ultimate purpose is to bring the visible rule and reign of the God of this universe into this broken, dysfunctional, sinful world so that it slowly starts to be healed and it slowly starts to get better. 
Because he says, this place is going to be restored through you, my image. So what does this purpose of God's kingdom have to do with you as a sophomore, right, in a dating relationship? I think it has to do with everything. You'll find it right here. Right here, so much of your dysfunction in relationships, I promise it arises from this. You think the girl that you're dating is your end goal. You think it's your purpose. Or you live like the guy that you're going to marry is the destiny of your life. And when you confuse the means with the ends, you suffocate the person. You suffocate them. They cannot handle you living your life for them. They weren't made for that. And when you ask your husband to be what he was never called to be, your purpose and your identity, it kills the relationship. This is why right now so many of you panic when he doesn't call you every night. And it's pushing him away. You've made him your purpose. Which means this, right? And we joke about this all the time, that that you'll find your wife here, whatever. But you are not here to find your wife. You find a wife to take care of God's world. And that's completely different. That's what a helper means. You're not here to find friends. You're here to take care of God's world, and friends are the vital means that God uses to bring that about. The purpose of all relationships is to bring about the kingdom of God. Is that your purpose? You see, there is another relationship that is more central, more fundamental to you, and that relationship is our destiny. It is our purpose. We're going to all semester talk a lot about the horizontal relationships in our life, friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, marriage, all that stuff. But our, the Bible dares to assume that all of our horizontal relationships will never be right until you're right with the vertical relationship of the God of this universe. That the king of the kingdom, God himself. And I'll just kind of end with this. There was a 19th century kind of pastor, theologian, who had a daughter who um, she was five days from her wedding, and she ended up with fever, right? 18th century, not great to end up with fever. That fever quickly took a downturn. And five days later, on her wedding day, she dies. And so, you know, the whole, he was pretty well known, the, the father was pretty well known, so the whole town, you know, people from out of town, they had showed up that week for a wedding, and instead they went to a funeral. Now stop right there. If our purpose is wrapped up in being married or having a relationship, then at that point, right, that that story is just gut-wrenching, right? It's sad, like I can't even think about that. But if that was her purpose, then that's the most depressing story you've ever heard. You might as well just despair. But you know what? Her dad talked at at his daughter's funeral, and here's what he said. He said, you know, in her last days, she realized that she was dying. And this sounds crazy, okay? She said she was actually excited. She was excited that she was going to see Jesus and that she was going to be the first one out of all of us. I know that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to me sometimes. But here's what they did. They buried her that day in her wedding dress. And her tombstone to this day reads, Here lies a bride adorned for her husband. 
See, the only way that you're going to bring your relationships under the law of God and live purposely with them is, you, is if you actually love the king of the kingdom. It's about him. If you love the king, the God himself, more than anything or anyone else, even your spouse, what's going to drive you to love this king? We're going to talk about it all semester. It's this, that God himself, God supreme, to see that he loves you so much that he would come into this world and he would take on flesh. And look at verse 24 again. He left. He left the glories of heaven. Jesus left the glories of heaven. And he came into this broken world. Why? The Bible dares to suggest that he could hold fast to his wife, the church. Jesus walks this earth and he lives in this broken world and he goes to a cross. Why? So that he could marry you and have you for all of eternity. This is it. Just join us all semester if you want. As we look at Jesus Christ, ultimately, who comes into this world to heal us of our brokenness and deal with our guilt. And we've got tons of shame in these areas. And he deals with it. And he does it not by staying away from us. Not by telling us to clean up our life. He deals with it by coming after us and marrying us and uniting us so closely to himself that he literally bears my brokenness, he bears my pain, he bears my sin, and his wholeness, his beauty, his righteousness is given to me. And when God reconciles you to himself by the work of his son, it begins to heal your horizontal relationships. It's that good. So I'll just end with this. What if this is really true? That relationships really are essential to you, not because of hormones or not because of chemical wiring, but because you are made in the image of God. Wouldn't it be worth your time to come here every Thursday and hear what the God of this universe has to say about relationships? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who is rich in mercy and kind in grace. It's the only explanation that you would marry broken people. Yes, Lord, would you be with us tonight? Would you be with us this semester? And would you open the good news of the gospel to us and see, help us to see what we don't believe? We think that you retreat from sin and you retreat from brokenness, but you come charging in and you marry us and you make us alive. Would you help us to receive that tonight? In your son's name I pray. Amen.